Um, if you've been with us this semester, or if you have, or if tonight's your first night, we have been this semester working our way through one of the books of the Bible, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, which has been like a circus of excitement. <laughs> and tonight we come to a subject, or at least a passage that addresses a subject that is absolutely enormous and highly controversial. So, let's just jump in. Deuteronomy chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 9 and then work through, chapter, or, uh, work through verse 22. This is God's word for us tonight. <clears throat> when you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God on, at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump in. <clears throat> Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the chance to, to break away from uh, school and study and uh, projects and tests and all that. I, I pray that you will be with us tonight. So I ask, Holy Spirit, will you come and will you open up our eyes and unclog our hearts or unclog our ears and soften our hearts? Uh, Because you know that we have no hope of understanding what this passage means apart from your help. So we invite you to come and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) I want to begin by just telling a few stories. Um, And we'll start ridiculous and get increasingly more serious. Story number one. There's this documentary called Mondo Elvis, which is all about and tracks the life of Elvis impersonators. And uh, one of these Elvis impersonators, you know, comes out and he says he is set for his theme music for his little shtick that he does, the theme music from 2001 Space Odyssey. And he computed that the day that Elvis supposedly died, if you add up the day, uh, the year, and the month, that totals 2001. So he figured that with that totaling of 2001 and with his theme music that he had just chosen to be in 2001 Space Odyssey, that Elvis must still be alive. After all, if you rearrange 
The letters in Elvis, what does it spell? Lives. Story number one. Story number two. If you've seen the TV show, and if you haven't, shame on you. Arrested Development. Yes. You know, any, you know Tobias, who is a, a, a psychiatrist, or, you know, what is he? You know, a psycho- psychiatrist. When he, you know, when things aren't working out well for him, what does he say in season one? I think that the universe is trying to tell me that I should be an actor. Story number two. Story number three. I had a friend of mine who went to Bellhaven University, and while he was there, he uh, knew this girl, and she uh, went up to one of the guys on the football team and said, God has told me that I'm supposed to marry you. And she didn't realize that the dude was already married. <laughs> Story number four. <laughs> a friend of mine emailed me this past week and told me that uh, a good friend of his thought that she was uh, called by God specifically to be a missionary to Africa. Because one day while she was out, outside, she looked up and she saw a cloud that happened to have been shaped similarly to the outline of Africa. So she thought, this is God telling me I'm called to be a missionary in Africa. She never uh, made it to Africa, as the story concludes. Last story. If you've read the book, Under the Banner of Heaven, it's a story that centers uh, around sort of unpacking what uh, Mormonism is, and it centers around a story where two guys, uh, this was a a true story that happened, I think, in the 90s or something, um, broke into this woman's house and brutally murdered her and her children because they were under the impression that, it, that God had told them to do this, that this was God's will for their life. That's the final story. Why do I tell you all these stories? Here's the point behind every one of those stories. Every one of us, if we are honest, wants to know the unknown. If you're a Christian in this room, you want to know what God wants you to do. You want to know what God's Will is for your life. You want to be in the center of God's will. And the question is, okay, how do we get there? If you're not a Christian, you still want to know what, what you're supposed to do. You, you, you know, as you're thinking through decisions, you still, want to, you still want to know what the right decision is for you to make. There's this idea of purpose kind of built into that assumption. And so the question tonight is, how do we know what God's will is for us? Or if you're not a Christian, how do we know what I'm supposed to do? How do I know what is the right decision to make? So we're going to look at this, and I think that uh, this passage breaks this down for us in two very basic ways. And so we're going to look at the way that we know what God's will is and the who that we have to know. So the way and the who, two points. Here's the first one. The way that we know. You all know the questions, right? Should I date this person or not? Which major should I select? What should I do after I graduate? What am I supposed to do with my life? Uh, What is God's will for my life right here, right now, with whatever particular decision you happen to be juggling with? Deuteronomy 18 zeroes in on this question, and and when it talks about the way that we discover God's will, it breaks it down into two different categories. The way forbidden on how to go about discovering God's will and the way commanded. So let's just look at each one of these at a time. Here's the way forbidden. Maybe a little helpful to provide a little bit of a context for this book. We've talked about it before, but Deuteronomy is based on this uh, situation where, where God's people, Israel, were slaves in Egypt. 
God breaks down into time and space, liberates his people from political oppression, marches out into the wilderness for 40 years where they're wandering. They get right on the verge of the land that they were promised to inherit. And here is Moses preaching this series of sermons, which happens to be the book of Deuteronomy. And as they are getting ready, looking in on the land that they're about to inherit, here's what Moses says, verse 9. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. They're right on the cusp of this land, right? And he says, when you get in there, don't imitate the detestable ways of what those folks are doing and how they are trying to discover God's will. And it says detestable, which literally means things of horror. It's not a, it's not a good deal what they are doing on how they are trying to discover God's will. And so right after that, Moses lays out nine different examples of how the people in the land of Canaan are going about trying to discover God's will that is wrong. And I'm not going to lay out all nine of these, but let's just kind of highlight a few of these. Here's the first one. Child sacrifice. Verse 10. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. Basically, here was the practice. That the Canaanites had uh, children and they offered their firstborn sons to their uh, pagan deities by by burning them in a ceremonial fire. And this was, you can kind of say this was a form of manipulation because what they would do is say, look how devoted I am. Look how uh, loyal I am to you. I'm so dedicated to you. I'm willing to do this. And now, gods, y'all are put in my debt to do what we want you to do, which was either to uh, receive some form of information from the gods about, you know, the the future, or it was to... um, assure that the gods would would grant fertility to the other women. It was kind of like, here we offer you our children, so give us more children, in other words. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Um, Currid, who is one of the world's top biblical archaeologists, um, which I know for Nathaniel, if he's here, there he is, his thumbs up, he studies archaeology. Um, He says this is real. He was over there on a dig in Carthage, and they had dug up this child cemetery where 200,000 children were buried as a result of just the the charred remains were just kind of tossed from doing this. This was a very real practice, a form of manipulation where, hey, we do this, now God's tell us something, tell us what the outcome of this particular situation is, or grant us, you know, more benefits here in this life. Here's the next thing. What's that? I don't. You, you may know, though. I don't. Okay. Here's, here's the next thing. Um, verse 10. It's, the next thing says, uh, Let no one be found among you who practices divination, which is just a form of sort of, you know, spiritual, mystical, uh, predicting the future. It's the same sort of idea behind what's the next one is uh, uh, sorcery. What's the next one? Interprets omens. Some of y'all may have heard about this in, uh, or have studied this in your anthropology classes. I remember studying this when I was an undergrad in one of my anthropology classes. Basically, people back then, obviously people today, needed to know answers to certain things. But to ensure the, you know, to ensure the, the right answer, what they would do is they would uh, kill a bird or, or something and, and look at its liver, examine its liver. And if, and if the liver was shaped a certain way, that meant yes. Or if it was shaped a certain, you know, a different way, that would mean no. So, you know, for example, you think... You know, uh, my wife's been acting weird. I don't know if she's, if she's cheating on me. And so what they would do is they would, the guy would go to you know, the, the magician or kind of the soothsayer of the, of the town, and he would kill a bird, look at the liver, and based off of how it was shaped, that would be his answer. That would be God's you know, revelation of how he would interpret that and know one way or the other what to do. So interpreting omens. 
Last one that we'll look at is um, someone who is a medium. This is verse 11. Someone who is a medium or a spiritist or who consults the dead. These are basically people who consulted with, you know, spirits, you know, Ouija board kind of thing, and, and, you know, consulting supposedly the spirits of dead people to figure out information about the future, how to predict the future. So basically, you see, we get this long list that Moses says, these are the ways that the Canaanites are trying to figure out God's will, and they are detestable. Don't do it. Don't have any part of it. This is not the way that you are supposed to go about finding God's will. Now, a lot of these practices, you think, okay, that's so out of date. I mean, who's really sacrificing their children anymore, at least in the, in the modern world that we live in? But, you know, some of the other things are actually very relevant. I mean, if you go down within walking distance of campus, you know there's that palm reader right on 321. I mean, it's just wherever it is, right there somewhere. I mean, this is, this is very real. So, but regardless of the particular forms that these take, trying to discover God's will, like the Canaanites did. These same basic impulses are rampant in our culture. And my guess is, potentially, in your life as well. The same basic instinct. Though it doesn't have the same form, it may have the same basic instinct, the same impulse. Let me explain what I mean about that. For some of us, we try to discover God's will for our lives by interpreting signs. You know, like, I'm trying to figure out whether or not this is someone that I want to be dating. I I hung out with them last night, and then the very next day, a bomb a math quiz, for example. And so you think, maybe this is, this is a sign. Maybe this is God trying to tell me I'm not supposed to date this person. You know, I think that we typically can, can think like that. And we're, trying to, we're constantly trying to analyze and interpret signs that has about as much accuracy as trying to determine, you know, the shape of, of a liver and basic, you know, basing our decisions off of that. Some of us, uh, another way that we do that is we're thinking about something, we want something, we're fantasizing about something, we're daydreaming about something, whether or not it's a person, whether or not it's a job opportunity, whether or not it's something, and it happens to cross our path. And we think, oh, this must be God's will. Here it is right in front of me. I must take it. I must, you know, this must be for me. And so what you're basically doing in that situation, at least potentially, is baptizing your own desires in the name of God's will just because it happened to be right here and I wanted it anyway, so I'll take it. Some of y'all don't go that route and instead go the route of just getting counsel from people, getting advice, which is a good thing. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But who are you getting advice from? Is Is it people who are your age and people who will essentially agree with you with whatever issue it is that you're trying to figure out and what you really want to do or what you know you shouldn't do or whatever. And so you start asking all your friends and stacking up all of this data. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, all of this seems to be confirming with, you know, what I think I should do. And this, may, this is probably God's will for my life then, asking everybody who essentially agrees with you. Others of us, we just kind of scrap the whole thing and say, there's no, you know, there's no question of what I'm supposed to do. It's just whatever I, whatever I want to do, basically whatever I decide is the right answer for me. So you don't listen to other voices. You don't listen for signs. You just listen to your own voice, and your own voice has the authority on how you make decisions. You see how, how this kind of plays out in our modern world? This is the easy route. This is the route where, where no faith is really required. It doesn't really require you to trust God. It's just, okay, I'll mix in a little superstition, I'll mix in a little luck, I'll mix in a little voodoo, throw in a little Christianity, and boom, there's my answer. And the bonus is, I got what I wanted to choose anyway, most of the time, right? 
This is the way that Moses says you are not to go about trying to discover what God's will is. This is the way forbidden. So if that is the way forbidden, what is the right way? What is the way that we are supposed to go about trying to discover what God's will is for our lives? Well, here's, here's, the, uh, here's what Deuteronomy says. Look at verse 14. It gives a little contrast here. It says, The nations that you will put dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. You are not to listen to the, to the diviners, to the sorcerers, to, to you know, the, the people who consult the dead. That's not who you are supposed to listen to. So who are you supposed to listen to? Verse 15. Good grief, it is hot in here. Sorry. Verse 15. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. You are to listen to the prophet. This is the call for you if you are a Christian in this room or not, that the way that you are to go about discovering God's will is to listen to the prophets. Now that is a nice, weird, relatively creepy religious word, the prophets. What in the world is a prophet? What is that? Well, the next few verses lay out exactly what a prophet is. There's four characteristics that I just want to briefly run through so that, because I think this is unbelievably important for you to grasp what this passage is talking about. So here we go. Here's the first characteristic of what a prophet is. We're going to look at the origin of a prophet. Verse 15 and verse 18, it says that the Lord will raise up a prophet. This is a um, divinely initiated thing. Nobody thought to themselves, well, I don't know what to do with my life. I think I may be a prophet. Could be an engineer or a mechanic. Okay, prophet. You know, this is, this is, this is not the thing that they, you know, decided to do. This was a God. God came to somebody and said, I, you are going to be a prophet for me. I will raise you up. This is a divinely initiated act. That's the origin. What is the model? Look at verse 15, it's, uh, 15 again. It says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. He says, somebody like me, I, Moses, am going to be the model of what a prophet's going to look like. Well, what, is, what did Moses do? What, how is he the model? He was the mediator. He was the one that stood in the gap between God and God's people and communicated between them, right? But why? Why, why do God's people need a mediator? Well, verse 16, here's why. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. On the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not hear the uh, voice of the Lord, nor see the great fire anymore, or we will die. The people heard God speaking, and they got freaked out. and said, we don't want that anymore. God, please talk to Moses. Moses, come report to us. And God, in his kindness, says, okay, I will communicate to you through a mediator. That's the model. But what is, what is, the, what is the mediator communicating? Here's the third thing. The message, verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. A prophet is someone who is God's spokesman. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet speaks to God's people the message that God wants communicated. Guys, when y'all were in junior high, you didn't ask out girls directly, did you? Because that would have been crazy. What did you do? You asked your friend to go ask the girl, right? You gave your friend the message, and he was speaking on your behalf with the authority of the message you gave him to go speak to the girl and say, hey, do you want to go out with my, my friend Matt? 
and then they would respond back. This is what a prophet basically is, is the go-between of somebody who comes and speaks on behalf of another person, in this situation God, to communicate the message that God has for his people. Little side note here. A lot of times when we think of the word prophet, we think of predicting the future, of, of foretelling, of you know, telling the future. And that is, that is an aspect of what a prophet does. But you see here, what, re- what a prophet's main emphasis is doing is forth-telling, telling what God's will is to God's people now. This is why they're always saying, thus saith the Lord. This is what God wants from you now. Not just in the future, but now. Last thing. We looked at the origin, the model, the message, and here's the last one. The authority. Verse 19. It says, if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. In other words, how you respond to the prophet is basically how you respond to God. If you deny the words of the prophet, you are denying God. If you, if you respond obediently to the words of the prophet, you are responding obediently to God. Let me summarize what all this means. Let me boil all this down. The way that we are commanded to go about determining God's will for our lives is to listen to the voice of the prophets. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, okay, I don't have a lot of access to prophets who can communicate to me what God's will is for my life. How is this helpful? Others of you may be like, I know I should have listened to that dude in my hall who said he had the gift of prophecy. I should have listened to him. Here's what this means. If all of the pressure in the Bible is boiling down to how we listen to the words of the prophets, where are they? Where can we get the words of the prophets? Very simply, the Bible. In God's kindness... He allows for prophets to speak on his behalf, people all throughout the Old and New Testament. And he says, I'm going to spiritually oversee and record these words so that not just that generation can have them, but every generation can have the words that I have wanted to speak to these people. This is why we call it God's word, by the way. You know, we refer to the Bible as God's word because we think this is what God has spoken. Another reason is, or or, furthermore, this is why we open up the Bible every week at RUF. Because... It would not be all that valuable for you to come and just hear whatever I want to talk about every week or just hear Matt Howell's random musings on whatever. We would rather hear from God himself. And so we really do believe that here at RUF. We really do take the Bible seriously, that it is God's word, that this is what he wants communicated to you and to me and you know, to all of us. So we look and see what it is. So here is the application for all of this, for how we go about discovering God's will. You find it in the Bible. It's not that complicated, at least on the surface. You want to know what God's will is for your life? It is clearly communicated to you in the Bible. The Bible is God's clearest recorded demonstration of what his will is for your life. It's pretty simple. So look at uh, verse, uh, actually, I'm just going to read you 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Here's just an example. It says this, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everybody else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Here's an example. It says, help the weak. Be patient with each other. Don't retaliate. Be joyful always. Pray continually. This is God's will for you right here, right now. There it is. That's how you discover what God's will is right there. But Matt, 
that's so general and objective. What about my subjective and specific situation in life? I mean, are you telling me that in the Bible somewhere I'm supposed to figure out whether or not I'm supposed to be an SD major or not, or whether or not I'm supposed to do this internship or this you know, camp this summer? Is that supposed to be in the Bible somewhere? Here's my answer. Um, yes and no. <laughs> this is a much bigger issue than we can really address here. I'm going to take a stab at it, but we have to keep it somewhat macro because everybody has totally radically different situations. The Bible provides basic parameters for how we go about making decisions and trying to figure out, figure out whether or not what God's will is for our lives. Here's the basic parameter that the Bible outlines. Are one, of the, one of the options that you are looking at, is one of them sinful? For example, if you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm doing well with my girlfriend, I want to progress this thing, maybe um, we should have sex soon. That would kind of you know, speed things up. Would that be God's will for me to do this? I can tell you, God's will for you would be not to have sex with your girlfriend. That is, you know, clearly biblical. Okay, so um, clearly not biblical. You hear what I'm saying? Uh, but if the situation is that there's no sinful option here, I could really do whatever and they would be okay, you have freedom. There really is freedom to choose one or the other. If sin is not involved, but... Scripture still speaks. Scripture still clarifies and gives you wisdom. If you get the principles of the, of the Bible in your bloodstream, it helps clarify what is, is you know, the, the, the issue that may be more wise for you to choose. So, for example, just to tell a story from my wife's life, uh, she was at this, uh, she, for her undergrad, she went to the University uh, Washington and Lee. And her freshman year and her sophomore year, she hated it. It was really lonely, didn't connect with anybody. The school was really hyper-pressure. She didn't like it. And she thought about leaving. She thought about transferring to Vanderbilt. So she had this spiritual mentor come into her life and ask her this question. You are running away from something, but what are you running toward? So in other words, the spiritual mentor of Catherine applied the scriptural biblical idea that said, hey, you are running away from something, but you can't run away from yourself. Your loneliness is going to follow you. The way that you interact in crowds is still going to follow you. You can't escape you. You have to deal with you. And so that scriptural idea clarified for Catherine the option as far as what she thinks would be the wise decision to do. And so she stayed at Washington and Lee and had a great time. Could she have transferred to Vanderbilt? Yeah, she could have. But you see how the Bible kind of still speaks into the, the freedom of what, of what she could do and, and, and allow her to have some wisdom here? St. Augustine said this, Love God and do what you want. Now, I don't think he means, okay, I love God and party this weekend, you know, like, woo do whatever I want. No, he's basically saying, if you are loving God and God has your heart, God is going to shape your heart to the, to, to the, to, he'll shape the things that you want. You see what I'm saying? The more that you get the Bible into your bloodstream, the more that you get the gospel deep down into your heart, that shapes and, and helps clarify things that you should want and things that you shouldn't want and how wisdom speaks into that. I know that may not be helpful at all. I hope it is. This is a macro, huge, enormous issue. We've got to move on. That's the way. The way forbidden, the way commanded, and lastly and briefly, let's look at the who. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? The who. Well, there was this line of prophets that Moses is pr- projecting and predicting here. Here comes this big line of prophets, but... There was this expectation that there was going to be a prophet par excellence. 
a Jack Bauer-esque prophet who is going to come in, a Raylan Givens prophet, if you're familiar with Justified. Two people caught it. There was going to be this prophetic messianic figure who was going to come, who was everybody expected to be the full and final revelation of what God's will is for humanity. And so, uh, fast forward to the first century AD. John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he is generating all of this hype because of this uh, ministry that he's doing. And so, the Pharisees come up to him and you can read about this in John chapter 1 verse 21. And I'm just going to read it. It says, they asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Capital P. And he answered, no. Now some Pharisees who had been sent uh, questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? You see the expectation? In the first century, Israel, there was a cultural and, and uh, spiritual expectation that there was going to be this big capital P prophet who was going to come. And here comes John the Baptist doing all this stuff. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. is this the prophet? Is this the one? And, and John the Baptist is like, nope, not me. So, The same expectation is leveled against Jesus when he shows up and he's generating all this hype as well. John chapter 6, 14. Right after he feeds the 5,000, here's what it reads. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, feeding the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Very next chapter, John chapter 7, verse 40. Same sort of deal. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Capital P. And you know what's crazy? Jesus never corrects them. They're like, dude, he's generated all this hype. Is this guy the prophet? And Jesus is like, yep, that's me. I am the prophet. The expectation of the Bible and the claim of the Bible is that Jesus was the full and final grand finale of this prophetic line. He is the capital P prophet to reveal who God is and what his will is for our lives. He is the, the climax and the completion of it all. So when you get to Hebrews chapter 1, and I know I'm giving you a, a lot of random scripture, just track with me. Highlight, underline, star Hebrews chapter 1 in your Bible because it's amazing. And here's what it says. Verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. You see how Jesus, the Bible's claim is that Jesus is the climax and the completion of of what God's self-disclosure is to the world. He is the capital P prophet, the one who says, this is what God is. This is what God is like. This is why the Bible in John 1 calls him the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I mean, think about what a word is. A word is something that reveals what's, who somebody is, who communicates it. it. It reveals the ideas and the values and the, the personality of the person communicating it. And the Bible says Jesus is that. Jesus is the word of God, the full self-disclosure of who God is. You know that um, popular line of books like The Idiot's Guide or, or um, Dummies, you know, the Dummies books, Dummies for... Uh, computer engineering or dummies for Shakespeare. You familiar with these, this, these line of books? Basically what these authors do, it's a brilliant idea, is that they take these very extremely complicated, what did I say? Shakespeare for dummies? Is that it? What did I say? Wow. That would be interesting. Here's the idiots who like Shakespeare. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Shakespeare for dummies, computer engineering for dummies. 
these very non-dummy, smart authors um, would take these very complicated subjects, enter into layman's frame of references, and speak with very simple, very terminology, you know, terminology to break down what these complicated issues are. And there was a pastor who very cleverly put it, who said, you know, when Jesus showed up, the incarnation, you know what that was? Deity for dummies. He said, do you want to know what holiness is? It's a very complicated issue. So God says, okay, I'll come and show you myself. I'll show you in the person and the work of Jesus what holiness really is. You want to know what love is? Okay, I'll come and show you myself in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the self-disclosure of God. And so here's the point for all of this. If you have not come to Jesus yet, you have not come to God yet. Jesus is who God is. And so if you have not come to him, you have not come to God. And you cannot know what God's will is for your life apart from coming to Jesus, the full and final self-disclosure of God himself. But Matt, wait. I thought you said, I mean, wasn't the whole point of point one was that the way that we know God's will is the Bible? Now you're talking about Jesus. You can have the Bible memorized. And if, it, and if you do not know Jesus personally... It doesn't matter. It won't work. How do I know that? Jesus himself said so in the Bible. He came and criticized the Pharisees and he said, y'all know the Bible. That's great. That's awesome. But you do not know me. And as a result, you do not really know the Bible because the Bible is about me. And you do not know God if you do not know me. So here is the, here's the point. Jesus is the key to unlocking what the Bible is really about to understanding who God is, and to understanding what God's will is for your life. And so here's the application for everybody in the room. Come to Jesus. He is how you know God, and you cannot know him apart from him. And so the Bible says the way that you come to him is through the door, through this means of what's called faith, trust, trusting in him, leaning in him, letting his voice have a functional authority in your life. Because as you're trying to make decisions and weighing, trying to figure out what, what is God's will for my life, you're listening to all kinds of voices. Voices of authority. The authority of your friends, the authority of signs, the authority of your own mind. And if Jesus does not have a functional authority in, in that, then he is not your Lord and Savior. So here's the point. If you are a Christian in this room, the invitation is for you to come to Jesus. If you have come to him 800 times, the invitation for you tonight is to come to him again. And the way that you come to him is through faith and repentance, meaning that you repent of the way that you have ignored him. Repent of the way that he has no functional authority in your life. And the good news of the gospel is he will receive you. He will forgive you. He will accept you. That is good news because I'm just like you. He does not have the functional authority in my life that he should, and that is a shame. So I come, I come to Jesus just like you as a repentant sinner saying, please forgive me for the ways that I have ignored your voice in my life. If you're not a Christian in this room tonight, I know, I know that there's some here that are, and you feel like I'm lost in this sea of having to make decisions and I don't know who I am or I don't have any directions on where I'm supposed to be going, the invitation is there for you as well. Come to Jesus. And maybe it's the first time in your life and you come to Jesus the same way that Christians continue to come to Jesus, namely through faith and repentance and repenting of the way that that you have no functional authority in my life and the good news is held out for you as well that Jesus promises he will 
receive you and forgive you and accept you. That is good news. That is the good news of the gospel. And so here's the point of this whole thing. What is God's will for my life? Believe in Jesus. That's it. Trust him and let his voice shape the way that you live your life and the way that you make decisions. Or as St. Augustine said, love God and do what you want with that being nuanced. Does that make sense? Love God and do what you want. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help um, because we know that there are so many hard decisions. It's so confusing. It's so perplexing to know what we are supposed to do and we want to be in your will. And the good news of the gospel is that in some ways we always are because you are uh, in control of all things and that gives us freedom. And I pray, Father, will you forgive us of the way that we have ignored you and have chosen to listen to other voices, have chosen to listen to the voices of our friends or of our fan club or of ourselves. And I pray, will you have authority in our lives, the the authority to contradict us, the authority to shape us, the authority to uh, confront us and make us live differently. You have the words of life. And that is good news. And we pray in your name. Amen.